All right, this morning we're continuing our series in Leviticus. We're going to be in Leviticus chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 7. Uh, but I want to start out by talking about three notes. Um, uh, I got three notes for you. Number one is about the word atonement by itself. Um, atonement, so uh, I got to go back for a second. So there's a thing that... Uh, that people do, pastors do, um, you'll see it in, in different places, um, where they take a word and they like break down the components of the word to like imbue some meaning on it that isn't necessarily there or like it's related to it, but it's just kind of a cheesy way to like express it. So the one that, that comes to mind for me, is that, and, and it really, just, I don't like it, just because it seems kind of cheesy and corny. So the one that I thought of as an example is, um, people will say, being selfless isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. <laughs> you know what I mean? I hate that. It's just silly. It's just a silly thing. I, and and, and I, 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 so I don't, I don't really like to do it. And, um, and I, I, I've seen people do it with atonement, where they say, atonement is at one mint. At one mint, it's it's because we bring together and, and we're, we're brought reconciled with God. We're made at one with Him. I've seen people do that with this word. And then I was reading in my commentaries and stuff uh, this week, and I discovered that that's not like a cheesy thing that someone made up. That's how the word was invented. That's actually what the word came from. Is <laughs> someone going at one mint atonement? So I don't know why you change, change the pronunciation when you shove them together, but you do. Atonement, even though it's at one mint. It was invented in the 1500s. Um, some people think it was invented by William Tyndale, the first guy who translated uh, the Bible into English from the original languages, Hebrew and Greek. He was the first one, William Tyndale, pretty famous guy. Tyndale Publishing is now a company yeah. based on him, named after him. Um, some people think he invented the word. Some people say, no, it was actually around before him. Isn't that interesting? Um, okay. Number two uh, is about Yahweh. So Yahweh um, is the name of God in scripture. Um, in, in the Hebrew, in the original Hebrew, um, in the original Hebrew uh, writing of the Old Testament, uh, it was all done in, uh, in all just consonants. So there was just consonants. They didn't have any vowels. Uh, it was an oral tradition. So when the people that knew how to read it knew how to read it, they knew how to pronounce all these words. But at some point, the scribes got concerned that pronunciation might fall off and they might not know it anymore. They thought it was important to maintain uh, the pronunciation. And so they added vowels in, but they didn't want to mess with the actual, well, the words that were already there. They wanted to leave them the same. And so they added vowels in by adding little dots and notes around the, the consonants. And that's how you know how to pronounce things in Hebrew. So if you ever see Hebrew letters, you'll see little dots around them and stuff like that. Those are the vowels shows you how to pronounce the, the, the words. But when these scribes got to uh, the name of God in the Old Testament, they were worried that if they put the pronunciation in there, that people then might use the, the name of God in vain, which we're commanded not to do. And so they didn't put any vowels on the name of God. So to kind of respect that um, and, and, and follow in, in suit when, when people translated the Old Testament from the Hebrew into English, 
uh, when they got to the name of God, they just took um, the word Lord and put it in all caps. And that is the name of God when you come across it in the Old Testament. Whenever you see the word Lord or the word God in all caps, um, that is the name of God. But it, if we don't know that, if you don't know that going in, it kind of throws off some of the meanings. So I'll give you a couple of examples. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 1, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So when we read it in English just like that, it sounds like it's just reiterative, right? It's saying like, O Lord, our Lord, like just kind of like really emphasizing Lord. But it's not. It's saying, O Yahweh, our Lord, as in our master, the actual word is Adonai that they put in there. So it's, O Yahweh, our master, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's much more specific. It's not talking about just any Lord. It's talking about Yahweh, our Lord. Yahweh, our master. I'll give you another example. Psalm 73, 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. So in this instance, um, that's actually... God, where God there is in all caps, that is Yahweh. So it's actually saying, um, and if we, if we, and even, and that's different, that's the name of God there. The one above it that says God, those aren't the same words that are being translated. That's Elohim, which is a more general word for God. So it's actually saying, but for me, it is good to be near Elohim. I have made Adonai Yahweh my refuge. I have made the master Yahweh my refuge. So it just brings a little bit more specifics in there. So when I read the Old Testament out loud, and actually even when I read it in my head, um, I say Yahweh when I get to Lord in all caps like that. Because I think it just, there's more meaning there than just the generic word Lord. Um, because it is meant to be God's name. So that's where we put that in there. Okay. Oh, third note. So that was number two. And uh, the third thing is, when, when we're going through Leviticus like this, there's a lot of repetition, and there's a lot of times where they'll, they'll talk, like mention something, uh, but later on they expound on that thing. And so sometimes um, I won't cover stuff that's in the passage, um, and uh, it's because I'm going to cover it later. But if you get to something, if we get to something, and you're like, we're reading through, and you're going, oh, that's interesting, I hope he talks about that, and then I don't. Ask me about it later. I might say like, oh, just wait a couple weeks. It's going to come up then. Um, or I'll go, oh, I just never, I wasn't going to talk about that. And so we can talk about it then. But I love it when people ask questions. Um, so if you ever have questions or anything, email me, talk to me afterwards, call me during the week, let me know. Okay, let's dive in now. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. And Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of Yahweh's commandments about things not to be done and does any of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall cut offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to Yahweh for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before Yahweh and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before Yahweh. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before Yahweh in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before Yahweh that is in the tent of meeting. 
and all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails, all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering, but the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and burn it up on the fire of wood. On the ash heap, it shall be burned up. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they do any one of the things that by the Yahweh's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt. When the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before Yahweh, and the bull shall be killed before Yahweh. Then the anointed priest shall come shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before Yahweh in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of meeting before Yahweh, and the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all its fat he shall take from it and burn on the altar. Then he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull of the sin offering. So shall he do this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. He shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it up as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any of the things that are by the commandments of Yahweh his God ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and shall kill his hand and shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it in the presence of the um, shall kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering of Yahweh, it is a sin offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering, offering with his finger, and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering, and all of its fat he shall burn on the altar, like the fat of the sacrifices of peace offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sins, and he shall be forgiven. Okay, so first let's talk about unintentional sins, right? Unintentional sins, kind of an interesting idea. It sounds like things that might be done accidentally, right? And certainly, as we read through the passage today and what we read through last week, you could see where there could be some accidents. There could be some mistakes. You missed something. You did something slightly wrong. You didn't quite do it. You know, you, thought, you forgot the kidneys, you know. It seems possible. I'm just saying there's a lot of rules. There's a lot of rules in there. It's easy to accidentally miss one. It's possible that they might do that. But the key to understanding what is meant by unintentional sins is actually to look at the alternative because it's not just things that are done by accident. So we see in Numbers 15, he actually talks about um, unintentional sins again, and their alternative. He says, you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, for the strangers who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native 
or a sojourner reviles Yahweh, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of Yahweh and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. So he's differentiating here between two kinds of sins. And really, the, the one that he talks about the being with a high hand, that's the one that we need to look at. Because he's saying that it's, it's sins that are done where you're looking directly at the sin, you understand what it is, you know that it's against Yahweh, and you do it anyway. That's what he's pointing. He's saying there are sins where you're just, you've got time to consider it. You know what you're doing. You've been over it and you just do it anyway. That's this sin with a high hand. The alternative is everything else, right? So everything else that isn't that are these unintentional sins. So it's sins that are done um, on accident, but it's also things that are done out of fear or done on impulse or something like that. It's not this measured, considered, um, direct disobedience. That's how my dad rephrased it when I was a kid. I remember that very clearly, that my dad would, the thing that was the biggest deal, right? We could get in trouble for all kinds of different things when I was a kid. Like kids do make mistakes all the time. They get in trouble all the time. But the way that my dad differentiated it for me when I was a kid was this is direct disobedience, right? You, you knew what was required. You knew what you should have done. And you intentionally, with full knowledge, did it the opposite, right? You violated the rules intentionally and with full knowledge. If I did something out of fear or I did something impulsively or I did something on accident, that's a different category, right? That's the, the bigger deal is this sin with a high hand. And that's what God's saying here. Now, in, under the old covenant... There is no sacrifice to cover sins committed with a high hand. The high-handed offender would be utterly cut off, is what, he's, what they say here. So that means one of two things. Some of the, the, those kind of sins would actually require the death penalty under the Old Covenant. But some of them, it's just you're literally expelled from the community. Like, you need to leave. You cannot live among us anymore. All sin, whether it's unintentional or intentional, creates a rift in our relationship with God, and all sin must be atoned for. And under this system, under the Old Covenant, the, the anointed priest was the one to do that. The priests were the intermediaries between the people and God. So if they had sin, they could not bring the sacrifices of the people before Yahweh. So that's why the first example of this sin sacrifice that was given is this is the sacrifice that would be offered by the priest if he had sinned unintentionally because he's got to be clean in order for everyone else to be able to offer their sacrifices it also says that his sin would actually affect the congregation it actually means that the sin is upon the people as well if he was in sin so he has to offer a much bigger sacrifice a bull and he's got to offer this and get clean so that he can then offer sacrifices for the whole congregation. And at times he would need to offer sacrifices for the congregation as a whole. All the people of Israel have collective sin. That's the second thing that is addressed in this passage is when there's collective sin among the people. So what are those collective sins? Now it might be something that they do uh, all together like all at once. Like maybe they had a big feast um, and they included foods that are banned, right? They, they included some of the foods that God says are unclean. They all ate of it. It was all at one time. They just did it. Boom. That's collective sin. 
More commonly, though, collective sins are things that just essentially become popular, right? So that in, in, in their day, it might have been that, you know, maybe they're, they're having a dry spell. They're not getting the rain that they need. One of them goes and offers a sacrifice to one of the Baal gods, and then it rains. So then they think, well, this is the ticket. Let's do this. They all start going around and doing it. And pretty soon, a lot of people in the community have done it. And it's not getting confronted. It's not getting addressed. No one's calling it out. That's collective sin. Things have just kind of become popular and common among groups of people. It says when they realize their guilt, they should be, they should then come. And when they realize and it's identified that, hey, we have strayed from God's plan for us. We've strayed from what he wants from us. They should come. Realize their guilt doesn't just necessarily mean that they like, we think of it as like they realized it. They went, oh, oh, we've messed up. But there's a connotation in the, in the Hebrew that also implies that they are begin to experience the consequences of their sin. Or they begin to experience the effects of their sin. They realize it and it is becoming a reality for them that they are experiencing the effects of their sin. When they do that, they need to come and bring this sacrifice. They need to repent and confess. There's also here a regulation for when a leader sins. And when a leader sins, it carries unique weight because they may lead those that, they are, that are following them into the same sin. When leaders did fall into unintentional sin, it needed to be confronted. Notice that it doesn't just say, in verse 23, it doesn't just say when he realizes guilt. It also says, when it is made known to him, the sin which he has committed is made known to him. What does that imply? It implies that somebody confronted them. Somebody told them about it. Somebody brought it up. Somebody said, hey, what you're doing isn't right. This isn't okay. When it's made known to them. And think about the fact that, again, this, this book, this would all be read to all of the people. All the people know this. So the priest getting up and talking about these sacrifices for sins, reading what God had written, he's going to read and say, first off, here's what happens if I have sinned. Here's what happens if I mess up. I, I am not above you. I actually am called a higher account. I will have to offer a bigger sacrifice than anybody else. Then he says, now if all of us sin, here's what's going to happen. And then he says, if a leader sins, if one of the tribal chiefs or something sins, here's what they have to do. And, it, and it, sometimes it's going to need to be made known to them. There needs to be accountability among leadership. Leaders need to be held accountable. They need to be confronted when they mess up. It is our obligation to confront our leaders in love and in the hope of restoration. Fortunately for us, our high priest doesn't have the problem of the high priest in, in Moses' day. Our high priest is Jesus, and he is sinless. None of this would ever have been required for him. He is our intermediary between man and God. He was and is sinless, so no one, none of this was ever necessary. But Jesus actually appears twice in this passage. First, he appears as the high priest, right? When we see in Jesus the high priest, he is our high priest. None of this was necessary for him because he was sinless, but he also is the sacrifice. The author of Hebrews notes that Jesus suffered outside the city walls. The crucifixion would have happened outside the city walls. They didn't crucify people within the city 
partly intentionally to warn people as they walked into the city. They would see the people being crucified and the crimes that they had committed so that you would think twice as you're coming into the city about what you're going to do when you're there. So Jesus was crucified outside the city. The author of Hebrews draws a direct line between that and the fact that the bodies of these animals were burned outside the camp. When they offered these sacrifices, they would put the fat on the altar. They would use the blood and bring it into the tent of meeting, put it on the altar of incense, sprinkle it before the veil. But the rest of it, all of it, the, is, is literally everything. He, he, he's very specific. The skin, the, the dung, everything is taken outside the camp onto the ash heap and burned outside the camp as a symbol of the fact that sin needs to be removed from us. Right? If, if that sacrifice is bearing the weight of sin, it needs to get out of here and be burned up. It can't stay in the camp. It needs to be burned up even if it's outside the camp. The author of Hebrews ties these things together in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. He says, The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus is our high priest, but he's also the sacrifice. He bore the weight of sin. All of these instances contain the possibility of forgiveness and restoration, but only after confession and repentance. It cost them something to be forgiven, right? They had to bring these animals. They had to bring a cost, something that cost them. They actually had to prove that they were going to go in the other direction. He will be forgiven. They had to confess their sins. They had to repent. These are important principles that we need to carry if we seek to live as community in the body of Christ. Forgiveness should always be possible among brothers and sisters in Christ, but confession and repentance are always necessary. We don't believe in cheap grace. Forgiveness should always be possible, but you need to confess the sins that you've committed against one another. You need to show that you're, you're going to walk in a different direction and it's not going to happen again. We'll look next here at verses, chapter 4, verse 27 through chapter 5, verse 13. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by Yahweh's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in place of the burnt offering. And that priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. The priest shall make atonement for him. He shall be forgiven. If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of Yahweh's food offerings. 
And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. If anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of an unclean livestock or a carcass of an unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him and he has become unclean and realizes his guilt, or if he touches human uncleanness or whatever sort of uncleanness may be with which one becomes unclean, and is hidden from him when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt. Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and realizes the guilt of, in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to Yahweh as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. If he cannot afford a lamb, he shall bring to Yahweh as his compensation for the sin he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one, of, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest who shall offer first the one for the sin offering. He shall wring its head from its neck, but shall not sever it completely. He shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. Then he shall offer the second for a burnt offering according to the rule, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it. He shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. He shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take a handful of it as a memorial portion and burn this on the altar, on the Lord's food, Yahweh's food offerings, it is a sin offering. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin he has committed in any one of these things. He shall be forgiven and the remainder shall be for the priest as in the grain offering. So these are the procedures for the Israelites, for the common people. No one is exempt from the need to restore their relationship with God. It is important for the leaders, for the priests, to be an example, but the ordinary people need to do it as well. And in this case, it's commanded that they bring female animals. And we talked last time about the fact that it would actually be better to bring male animals because they're expendable. You don't need as many of them in order for the flock to continue to flourish. But in this case, he's talking to common people. It would be much more likely that commoners would only have one male animal around. So in their case, it's a much harder sacrifice to sacrifice their one male animal. Now they don't have the ability to reproduce. So the female animal would be much more accessible for the common Israelite. And accessibility is clearly a priority here in this passage, which we'll get to in a second. We give them three examples of unintentional sin that helps us to uh, kind of clarify what that is. This isn't meant to be an exhaustive list. It's just meant to be an example so the reader can understand what's meant by unintentional sins. The first is failure to testify. He says, if you, if you have evidence, if you've seen this thing, or you even come to know about this, you're required to speak up. And if you don't speak up, it's actually sin. Well, right there, we see that's not an accident. Well, you don't fail to speak up by accident. That's just a sin of omission. You, you made a choice not to speak. You made a choice not to 
tell the truth that you know, probably out of fear, right? Most people that choose not to testify in some situations because they're afraid. They're afraid of maybe how it make them look or they're afraid of repercussions, someone trying to get them back for, for their testimony. He says that if we don't do this, then, then we make these sacrifices in this, under the old covenant here. The other example he gives is touching unclean animals. And the implication there is not just that they touched an clean, unclean animal, but they didn't act accordingly after they did that. We'll get into that later a little bit more. But that's a, a pure accident kind of situation. The last one is uh, making a rash oath. And again, here, this isn't an accident. If you make a rash oath, that's not an accident. It's just an impulsive act. But again, it's differentiated from this idea of sinning with a high hand. And notice it doesn't even matter what the oath was about. It's just simply that they had promised to do something. He says, whether it's to do evil or even to do good, you don't need to be making these kind of rash oaths. And so if you don't intend to keep your word, then they're sin. In all of these cases, the individual needed to confess their sin and then bring their sacrifice. We would call this confession and repentance. But that we can, we're called to confess our sins. It's a necessary part of maintaining our relationship with God. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it tells us that we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a truth that we need to confess our sins but it also must be followed by repentance. It must be followed by a change of heart. We don't have to offer a sacrifice anymore because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. All we have to do is confess our sins and accept his sacrifice on our behalf. But part of that confession is, includes repentance. It includes a plan to move in a different direction, to not allow this to happen again. It's interesting to see here that forgiveness was available to all Israelites. It was intended to be very accessible. Notice that he gives an income-based uh, procedure here, right? He says, like, you can offer a goat or a lamb, but if that's too much for you, if you can't afford that, then you can offer a couple birds. But if you can't even afford a couple birds, then you can offer some flowers. He wants it to be accessible to everyone, regardless of their, um, of their income level. But again, here, we see a connection to Jesus. Right? This sin offering was intended to be, should be an animal, a goat, a goat or a lamb. But if not, it could be a bird. But if not, it could be a grain offering. That grain offering could stand in the place and represent the animal offering. Just as when we take communion, the bread represents the body of Jesus. There's a connection. We'll look lastly here at chapter 5, verse 14, through chapter 6, verse 7. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of Yahweh, he shall bring to Yahweh as his compensation a ram without blemish, out of the flock, valued at, at, in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy things and add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offerings and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by Yahweh's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. 
He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before Yahweh. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against, the, against Yahweh by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and realized his guilt, he will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely. He shall restore it in full and add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to Yahweh a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before Yahweh. He shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. This section deals with sins that require not only sacrifice but restitution. It's often that we mean, this is often what we mean when we talk about repentance. It's not merely lip service, but taking action to change one's ways. This would often include making up for the harm that, someone, that was caused. I want you to notice in chapter 6, verse 2, that it says, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against Yahweh, it's if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against Yahweh. That's bad, right? We committed a breach of faith against God. But how is that done in this, in this verse? By deceiving one's neighbor. That deceiving one's neighbor is a breach of faith against God himself. What is it saying? That if we hurt one another, we're actually hurting God. This is what Jesus says when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment, right? He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because loving one another is part of how we love God. And when we hurt one another, we hurt him as well. Because we hurt one of his children. We hurt those that he loves. People matter to God. And when we hurt other people, we hurt him. God is careful in this passage to cover all the ways we might rob one another, right? He talks about outright robbery, but he also expands it to include anything that you might think of, right? He includes it to include deception, oppression, even finding something that belongs to someone else and then lying about it, right? There's no, there's no this means there's no finders keepers in the Bible. That's not, that's not a command of God. In these instances, what was taken should be returned, confess it as you return. Obviously, you have to return it. You have to confess in that situation and add a fifth to it. So whatever you took, you're adding 20% when you return it. That's part of making this restitution. When should that be done? He says specifically, on the day that you realize your guilt. On the day that you realize, on the day that it's convicted, you're convicted, you should go and make restitution, make confession, make restitution, make sacrifice. Keep short accounts. We need to make it up when, as soon as we realize this. Jesus himself actually expounds on this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, he's talking about this directly, right? 
He's talking about the sacrificial system. He's talking to Israelites who are still utilizing the temple. On the day, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. What is he picturing here? He's picturing an Israelite coming to the altar, right? Bring his goat, right? And then you realize, oh, I did something against my, my friend, but I'm here. I've got the goat. He says, leave it at the altar. So tie it up. And then go and be reconciled to your brother. And then come back. Because this should be immediate. We should be immediately willing to go and restore this situation. This is true for our worship as well. If we realize as we're coming before God, whether that be in prayer, whether that be in worship, whether that be reading our Bible, when we're coming to him and we then realize that we have, someone has something against us because we've done something to hurt someone. We need to go and deal with that before we try to come to God. We need to deal with that first. Deal with it immediately. Make restitution. Now I want to end with this question. I have a question, and that is, why did this sacrificial system work? Have you ever thought about that? Why did it work? Why was it that if you had sin like this, you could take your goat and bring it to the priest, and you could put your hand on its head to identify your sin with this goat, and you could kill the goat and give it to the priest, and he puts the fat on and, and all of this and, and does all these stuff with the blood. Why did that work? And why, if that worked, why then would it also work to bring some, some birds if you couldn't afford a goat? Why would that work? And if you couldn't do that, why did it work to just bring some flour and, and do that? Why did that atone for sin? Why did that count? Why did it work? Why is that effective for them? It's kind of strange, right? It's not as simple as like, when I say, why does your car work, right? You're like, well, I put gasoline in it and then I have a, a combustible engine. Like you could ex I can't explain how it works, but you could explain how it works, right? Some of you could explain how it works, right? You understand that how that works. It's a system. Why did this work to atone for sin? Why did these sacrifices work to keep their relationship with God clean to atone for their sins. Why did it work? Simply because God said it did. Simple as that. It's because God said it worked. Because it's all grace. This system itself is grace. The Israelites were saved by grace just like we're saved by grace. This is grace. God chose Abraham by grace. He didn't do anything to earn it. He pulled them out of Egypt, rescued them from slavery in Egypt by grace. It's not that they were doing so good that God looked in Egypt and was like, man, these guys are really rocking. They do so, they're so righteous and they worship me so well. I got to go rescue them, man. They, they've really earned it. No, they, they were pulled out and they were in the middle of idol worship and worshiping Egyptian gods and all this stuff. And they were a mess, but he rescued them by grace. He chose to dwell among them told them, hey, set this up. This is going to be the symbol of my presence among you. I'm going to dwell in this tabernacle. That's not like the tabernacle was so amazing that God's like, I've got to move in. Right? No, it's just a, a tent 
that he told them exactly how to build it so that it would be a place where he would dwell. But he dwelt there by grace. They didn't earn it. And then he sets up this system for them to deal with their sins so he could live among them. And he sets up a system that they can understand. Again, this stuff is strange to us, right, when we read about all these sacrifices. But it's how everyone worshiped back then, right? You look at all the other, all the other peoples at the time and all their different gods. It's how they, they worshiped through sacrifices of different kinds. And some of them became very evil sacrifices because it's demon-influenced. But it was what they understood. This was how people worshiped at the time. And so God sets up a system for them in which they can worship him in a way that they understand. He can have a relationship with them and they can deal with their sin in a way that costs them something. They can understand the weight of their sin. They can understand the fact that it hurts people, that it hurts God when they sin, when they rebel in these ways, by it costing them what they have, which is animals. It's grace, even in that, even in this system is grace because there's no reason that this is such an incredible thing, right? If you zoom out on this, zoom out, imagine you're standing there in the tabernacle. You've got the tabernacle, you've got the, the altar, you've got the animals, and you even have, just say, a massive bull. Maybe the priest has sinned and he's offering this massive bull and there's a lot of blood and everything, but zoom out a little bit. Imagine you're in an airplane looking at it. It's nothing compared to the world. It's nothing compared to God. When you zoom out on it even further, like it's just, it's just nothing. Nothing is happening there. It's so small. It's not value. There's no value in it. It's just a few people gathered in this one little place on earth, sacrificing an animal. Right? This, it's supposed to be this pleasing aroma going up to God. Well, it's a very small flame. Even if it's a even if it's a big fire, it's a pretty small flame. It's a very small smoke stack going up. It worked because God said it worked, because God said, if you do this, it will please me. And it's their obedience that is pleasing to him. It's not the actual act that's going on. It's not the actual sacrifices that are going on. It's the fact that they are being obedient to him. The fact that they are acknowledging their sin, that they're coming to him with it, and that he's granting them forgiveness again by his grace. And all of it, all of this whole sacrificial system, all of Leviticus, all of the Old Testament, all of scripture points forward to Jesus and says, this is what Jesus is going to do. He takes the place of all of these things. He is the ultimate salvation by grace that we stand in. I'll wrap up with this, three takeaways for today's message. Number one, keep leaders accountable. That's clear in, this, in the, uh, the first section we looked at that leaders need to be held accountable because they have such influence over people. Their sin can affect more people and so they need to be held accountable. They need to be held accountable, confronted in love, but then with the hope that restoration might be possible. Number two, incorporate confession into your prayer life, right? A lot of us pray regularly. It's something that we often do that we want to pray, but most of the time we pray for what's going on with us, right? We pray for asking God for help, asking God for, uh, you know, get, casting our cares on him and all those kind of things. That's great. But part of it needs to be confession as well, confessing to him, hey, here's how I've stepped out of line this week. Here's our, where I've strayed from you. 
Confession needs to be an integral part of our prayer life. And then third, follow confession with repentance and restitution. These are our valuable principles regardless of the fact that the sacrificial system has been abolished by Jesus. It's still good for us to confess, to repent, to make restitution when we've hurt someone. I'm going to pray here in just a second, then we'll take communion together. Then we'll have a prayer team that's available for anybody who'd like prayer. They're going to be right over here. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll sing one final song. All right, would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that we can come and worship you and that we don't need to offer these sacrifices because you are our ultimate sacrifice. We thank you for that and for the blood that you shed for us. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.